Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States. Episode 4.23, Preparing to Meet. As we reach the summer of 1774, the ongoing crisis of the past decade was reaching a fever pitch in the colonies. Boston had seen the colonial capital moved out to Salem, and their port closed until further notice. Throughout all of the colonies, there was a general agreement that the British had gone too far. Everybody knew that there needed to be a reaction, and, in fact, everybody pretty much agreed that a general boycott of imports from Britain was the best response. Except, despite everybody acknowledging the need to do something, and even generally agreeing on what that something was, things were not quite so simple. There was considerable pushback in all of the colonies from the merchant class, the group that would be most acutely injured by any kind of a general boycott. Further, everybody still remembered and harbored suspicion from the previous attempt at a non-importation agreement during the Townsend Acts. Claims of colonists violating that non-importation agreement had led to an atmosphere of distrust. The response, therefore, was far more tepid than what Boston had hoped for. Rather than immediate action, the majority of the colonies sent letters acknowledging what had happened and showing support for Boston, though resisted on agreeing to immediate action on the matter. Instead, those colonies agreed that if there was going to be any response, it needed to be all of them responding together. Sure, it would send a more powerful message. But more importantly, it would ensure that everybody was on the same page and knew the consequences of any duplicitous behavior. This brings us to a key point and something that I want you to all keep in mind as we move forward. The First Continental Congress was something born largely out of mistrust. Everybody knew that something needed to happen, but nobody wanted to be double-crossed by a fellow colony. I bring this up because even now, on the eve of the revolution, you can see the state of mind of the colonies. We are talking about June 1774. Fighting will begin in just 10 months, and the Declaration of Independence is just two years away. But even now, at this moment, there remains a distrust between the colonies. The Continental Congress, therefore, was a function of pragmatism more than any grand statement. As a spoiler moving forward, the deeply ingrained competition between the colonies is not going to cease simply because the revolution, nor following the creation of the republic. That, however, is more of a long-term theme that I just want to clue everybody into. For this week, we are going to watch as conditions in New England continue to deteriorate while everybody prepares themselves for the most significant meeting of the colonies to date. By the middle of June, Connecticut became the first colony to take action. The lower house told their committee of correspondence to go ahead and start picking delegates for the Congress. Rhode Island would follow suit a few weeks later. Well, this was all fine and good. In Boston itself, both the Americans and the British were on edge. On June 3rd, Lord Dartmouth wrote to Thomas Gage and made clear that any violence coming from the colonists needed to be quickly put down. 
the troops that had accompanied Gage were not there merely to make a statement. They were there to keep the peace. This was made even more difficult as more and more of the coercive acts rolled into the colonies, further aggravating the situation. Public discourse in Boston was likewise growing more ominous during those early summer months. In a sermon by the Reverend John Lathrop, he commented on the evils of tyranny and made comments about resisting such a push and preparing for the unavoidable war. There were callbacks during his sermon to the Glorious Revolution, an event, if you'll recall, where the citizens of Boston had dispatched with their appointed royal governor. His sermon, more than just being a call to arms, had an overarching theme of unity that ran through the entire thing. Things in Boston were quickly approaching, and potentially had even already tipped over, that invisible precipice from which there was going to be no return. For men like Lathrop, it was clear that everybody was going to need to stand together and place aside their own petty self-interests for the coming struggle. Others would join in this battle of words as well. In Boston, specifically the Gazette, remained a vehicle of information and debate for the ongoing crisis. People like Mercy Warren and Samuel Adams continued to turn to the paper to further their agendas. This type of language would be spreading throughout all of the colonies in the coming two years and would be used extensively to help unify those colonies together with their historical competitors. There was a sharp rise in rhetoric following the passage of the Boston Port Bill. At least at first, the Massachusetts Assembly, now based out of Salem, appeared willing to avoid further upheavals by agreeing to work with Gage and quickly took care of the necessary business. Furthermore, a nine-person subcommittee was formed with the stated function of talking everybody down from the edge. This committee, which did have members friendly to Gage on it, talked openly about how they planned to repay London for the lost tea. For Gage, this came as a tremendous relief. He had friends on the committee who were reporting back to him with exactly what he wanted to hear. There were surely still going to be bumps in the road, but all signs were pointing to Massachusetts having finally been cowed by the measures. If all worked well, they would pay for the tea, be reminded of their place, and everybody would just move on with their lives. There was just one problem. You see, those on the committee were well aware of who was feeding information to Thomas Gage. After spending long days discussing reparations on the tea, everybody would adjourn and go home for the day. Except not everybody went home for the day. Those friendly to Gage went home to be sure. But all of those on the committee who were less sympathetic to the governor doubled back and moved to another room where they could continue to meet with far less oversight. There, the same subcommittee took up questions to what the response was going to be. It was in these secret meetings that on June 17th, Massachusetts agreed to send delegates to the Continental Congress in Philadelphia, now scheduled for September 1st. This same committee that Gage must have been optimistic about voted not to repay the losses from the tea but rather to give stipends to the delegates to cover their expenses. 
Gage would discover in mid-July that the subcommittee was not doing him any favors. However, even this discovery did not come until after the committee blasted out a series of resolutions on non-consumption agreements of tea, as well as calling for a day of fasting on July 15th. Blindsided, Gage rushed to dissolve the assembly and sent the colony secretary, Thomas Volker, to deliver the news. The assembly, knowing that this was coming, literally locked the secretary out of the room, leaving the man to shout his orders through the now-locked doors. Boston presented something of a unique situation when it came to meeting, simply because of everything else going on there. It isn't as though Thomas Gage was going to happily give permission for the colonists to meet and to send people to this convention. However, by this point, there was a discussion not just taking place in Massachusetts, but throughout all of the North American colonies. There was widespread debate throughout the colonies on just what should be done and exactly how far they wanted to take their response. These conventions in the states were not, generally, officially sanctioned events. Unsurprisingly, British officials were not interested in helping the colonists host what they viewed to be an illegal gathering. There were a handful of ways this would manifest, and beyond that, the colonists would all individually have to deal with the fact that the governors were doing what they could to prevent the meeting from happening. In some colonies, the process of picking the delegates was simple and straightforward. In Rhode Island and Connecticut, for instance, the assemblies just went ahead and did the thing. The governors were elected directly, so really there was no meaningful interference to stop them from appointing delegates. Beyond those two standouts, colonial governors were often doing what they could, to little success, to disrupt the meetings. There were attempts to interfere, which all took on different looks depending on where you were. In New Hampshire, Governor John Wentworth did some angry handshaking and let the participants know that they were going to regret their actions, making some vague warnings about what would happen if they chose to proceed. In North Carolina, the governor learned about the plans for the convention in the local newspaper. The governor complained about the gathering being illegal, but again there was little he could meaningfully do, other than to grumble under his breath in annoyance. In what is my personal favorite attempt to sidestep official interference, in South Carolina, the legislature had been prorogued previously until August 2nd. Knowing that on the 2nd, they were going to be prorogued again until all of this convention talk was behind them, they hatched a simple but very effective plan. You see, the assembly was set to begin their meetings at 10 a.m., whereby the lieutenant governor would promptly send everybody right back home. Sure enough, that is exactly what happened except that the assembly showed up early and started the meeting at 8 a.m. In those two extra hours, they were able to pass a resolution in support of Boston, elect their delegation, and then finally voted to provide the necessary funding for those delegates. Much to what I must assume to be the very considerable chagrin of their lieutenant governor. Although colonial governors had little success in intervening with the ongoing conventions, that is not to say that it was easy sailing. 
In some colonies, there was little in the way of debate, and a consensus was quickly reached on the slates of delegates and positions. However, that was certainly not universal. In Virginia, South Carolina, Pennsylvania, and New York, there were often vitriolic battles between different internal camps. One of the most critical battles that arose, especially in the South, came over the question of exactly the lengths that everybody should go to. There was widespread acceptance for non-importation. However, non-exportation, well, that was a different matter altogether. For the most part, debates over what each colony's position at the Congress would be, plus the selection of the delegates, took place at the local conventions. In Virginia, where debates ran extraordinarily frequently through July and August, there was real concern over moving too far. Even now, we are still seeing pledges of loyalty being made towards the king. Virginia was a major export center. We have talked a lot about this throughout the course of the show, how their economy, though now more diversified, lived and died through the tobacco trade. The idea of non-exportation brought with it the real risk of significant economic damage. They all supported Boston, but to what lengths were they willing to go to show that support were far more up in the air. This is to say nothing of the fact that for many of the colonists, the destruction of the tea sat as a real sticking point. While the destruction of the tea and the subsequent Port Act led to widespread debate, it was the other coercive acts that really concerned the other colonies. Yes, the Port Bill was obviously concerning. However, it was the Justice Bill and the Massachusetts Government Act that really would cause the most fear for everybody else. News of these acts came into the colony in June and July. Just to establish a timeline here, this is in that period after everybody decided that a Congress was necessary, but before most colonies had decided on their delegates. It was during this period we have been talking about, where the individual colonies were busy deciding their own positions. The real issue is that the Port Bill was extremely specific to Massachusetts, and even more so to Boston itself. Other ports in Massachusetts remained open. It was only Boston that had been shut down. Well, the Justice Act and the Government Act also applied only to Massachusetts. It was not difficult to see how those could be extended to the other colonies. As a quick refresher, the Government Act was the act that completely upended the Massachusetts Charter. The Justice Act was the act that stated that any British official charged with a capital offense would be transported back to England for trial. Thus, should there be a repeat of the Boston Massacre, a local jury would not hear the case, but rather a, presumably, friendly jury back in England itself would hear the case. Thus, although the Port Act was extremely specific, these other two acts were not as much. Both the Administration of Justice Act and the Government Act could easily be applied to the other colonies. It was pointed directly at Massachusetts for the moment, but what would happen if any other colony ran afoul of the Crown? The Government Act clearly established a precedent that their charters could be arbitrarily changed, on a whim. This means that none of their charters were safe. Today, it was Massachusetts, 
But tomorrow? Well, it could be any of them. This news is coming into the colonies right at the same time that they are sitting down to seriously consider the idea of a broader Congress and helped push anybody who may have been on the edge safely into supporting such an endeavor. This is all to say that while planning for the Congress was now well underway, during the summer of 1774, there did remain disagreements about the extent of the Congress. There still remained factions that favored an appeal to the king before doing anything else. Others favored a plan of non-importation, while others still had non-exportation in their equation. All throughout that summer, local conventions were held in all of the individual colonies. These local conventions required that each of the colonies answered certain individual questions about what they were going to do in Philadelphia when the actual Congress was held. First, there was the process of electing the actual delegates that were going to go and attend the Congress. Second, each colony needed to decide how it wanted to proceed. Did they want to remain open and flexible? Did they want to send detailed instructions that the delegation was not allowed to deviate from? Or was it something in between? It is critical to understand that the First Continental Congress was not just some meeting of each of the colony's radicals. There were such people there. Samuel Adams was a delegate from Massachusetts. You, however, also had moderates, such as John Jay of New York and John Dickinson of Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania also produced Joseph Galloway, who was an outright conservative. Galloway, who has long been a close personal friend to Benjamin Franklin, would in just a few years find himself leaving the colonies behind for good as one of the highest-profile loyalists. In Virginia, we see debates over the question of non-importation versus non-exportation emerge. We had seen Virginia act with some trepidation during our last episode as they questioned how far they were willing to go. They wrote in support of Boston and, in general, agreed to the idea of a Congress. However, the lengths that they were willing to accept were still being questioned. Yet, ultimately, Virginia would take some of the most radical action yet that August in preparing for the upcoming Congress. Virginia, although reaffirming their loyalty, directly called out Parliament for their continued attempts at taxation. They agreed to non-importation of all goods, slaves included, from Britain, and agreed to completely forego drinking tea for the time being. Critically, however, as to the question of non-exportation, they agreed to put that off for an additional year. They likewise reached an agreement not to reopen the courts, a process that meant British merchants were going to have a far more difficult time suing for recovery from the Virginia colonists. Finally, they elected their slate of delegates, which included Richard Henry Lee, Patrick Henry, and Peyton Randolph. The final delegate is somebody who I want to take an extra moment with, because his views are going to carry increasingly heavy weight moving forward. This final delegate is none other than George Washington. Washington had become more politically active in the years prior to 1774. Although he had been a Burgess for a while, the ongoing crisis saw him personally adopt a more active role 
Washington had signed the Virginia Declaration some months before. Now, in August, we see him firmly in the camp of supporting non-importation. Washington knew that non-importation had worked in the past, and fully believed that it could work again. He saw no purpose in further letters back to London. The colonists had tried that route time and time again, and it was clear by this point that nobody was listening. Washington firmly believed that a boycott gave the colonists their best chance at effecting a change. Again, it had ultimately worked during the Stamp Act years before. He, of course, knew about the issues regarding non-importation during the Townsend duties. But the assembly of a Congress of the Colonies would help prevent everybody from doing their own thing and would bring a sense of uniformity to the matter. Finally, Washington was never a fan of mob violence in any fashion. He was never a fan of the destruction of the tea and found the entire ordeal to be cringeworthy. A boycott, on the other hand, brought with it a certain virtue that appealed to him. As the historian John Fairling puts it, if the coercive acts were to be repealed, it would come only with the sacrifice and accompanying virtue of the individual. Proving that he was in full support of a boycott when Washington secured election to another term in the House of Burgesses a few weeks later, he served chocolate and coffee to celebrate, rather than tea. These decisions to give delegates varying degrees of flexibility from colony to colony will prove to have important impacts on the Congress itself. South Carolina, for instance, gave their delegates wide latitude to do what they felt was right. However, South Carolina also included a caveat that would have major ramifications. Although they were going to allow their delegates flexibility, they were not going to agree to follow anything that was not voted on by their own delegation. So in a situation where a majority of the other colonies, or indeed all of the other colonies, agreed to a particular action that the South Carolina delegation did not agree to, South Carolina would not follow in the action. In Pennsylvania, the delegation was led by John Dickinson. Dickinson has, of course, appeared a few times now on the show, and had really established himself nicely as being the leader of the moderate camp. This is exactly what makes Dickinson such a potentially powerful player in all of this. Certainly, he was not some radical, akin to a Samuel Adams or a Patrick Henry. But rather, everything that he has always done has been a carefully measured decision. When Dickinson agreed that a general congress should occur, his word brought a lot of weight with it because of his long history of moderation. John Dickinson, however, was not even the most moderate member of the Pennsylvania delegation. The previously mentioned Joseph Galloway by this point had become an outright conservative. Galloway is suspected of writing a pamphlet that challenged the legitimacy of the convention entirely. Assuming that this was indeed Galloway writing, he warned about a rising republicanism and the fact that the Congress was an unconstitutional assembly that they had no right to meet as a legislature. For a group of people who expended a lot of energy shouting about their constitutional rights, it sure seems hypocritical that they were now going to address the ongoing crisis through their own illegal assembly. Though, really, nobody paid all that much attention to Galloway. The Pennsylvania delegation certainly was not what you would consider a radical bunch. 
With Dickinson leading the delegation, he showed an amount of flexibility. Dickinson had no problem reimbursing the East India Company, nor with obeying the Navigation Acts. While that does sound like a pretty major concession, Dickinson was also steadfast that in order to make such concessions, Parliament needed to give up their claims over passing legislation and taxes for the colonies. The moderate Dickinson, therefore, still viewed an end goal of ending parliamentary supremacy in the American colonies. Should the British not agree to such terms, which one must believe that Dickinson was well aware they wouldn't, then a boycott needed to be put into place. Dickinson, always the pragmatist, made sure to clarify that while these were what was ideal, they were not binding on the delegation, instead recognizing the importance of unanimity between the colonies. New York was another colony that was struggling over what to do. There was no overriding convention in New York, as there was in other colonies, nor did the local committee of correspondence want anything to do with picking delegates. The decision therefore fell into the lap of that committee of 51 that we talked about last time. The political atmosphere in New York presented the committee with two competing sets of delegates, each representing a different faction. The two factions, one representing the commercial interest of the mechanics class, and the other being the more moderate class, illustrate what had been a long-standing political divide in the colony. Now, ultimately, the more moderate group, featuring John Jay, would be the one that got elected. This, however, only fueled more debate, as the mechanics now felt slighted. This led to weeks of debate and a lot of bad feelings between the two groups. There were large public demonstrations, multiple meetings, and ultimately the delegation that was selected had to agree to concessions to pacify the aggrieved mechanics. Georgia also deserves just a moment of attention here as well. Although they were invited, Georgia declined to attend the Congress. Georgia was in the middle of dealing with an ongoing conflict with the local Creek tribes, and as a result, they were very dependent on the British to continue sending arms into the colony to deal with the situation. Sympathies or not, Georgia simply could not risk completely alienating the British at the moment, something that they were worried sending delegates to the Congress would do. These conventions and debates that we have spent today's episode talking about really hit at a key point that we have indeed been talking about this entire season. There was not simply a group consensus to any of this. The colonies were still competitors and were having to deal with the reality of working together. These differences certainly existed at the individual colony level too. The entire purpose of the Congress to begin with was that everybody was looking side-eyed at everybody else, suspecting the other of preparing to undercut them. South Carolina was concerned enough at the convention being dominated by the northern colonies that they refused to abide by any legislation that was passed that they did not explicitly agree to. In the case of Georgia, they had simply decided that they were not going to send a delegation at all. Even within individual colonies, there were rifts that were very clearly exposed throughout this process. While we did not delve into the specifics of the battle in New York, I wanted to use it to show that there were battles that were inside of the individual colonies. 
In that case, there were two very distinct camps that emerged and had delegations ready to go. This would end up forcing concessions before they were even ready to leave for Philadelphia. Though, if these differences divided the colonies, we must also take a moment to look at a critical unifying factor that they almost all had in common. An underlying theme of this episode has been a focus on the continued erosion of British authority in the colonies. We saw in multiple colonies attempts by royal officials to interfere in the selection process of the delegates. Multiple royal governors had prorogued legislatures. The governors of New Hampshire and Georgia had given warnings that the colonists should tread very carefully. In Massachusetts, we discussed how the committee was on the surface working with Thomas Gage, while at the same time holding secret nighttime sessions to address the real business. In South Carolina, the colonists were aware the legislature was going to be called and immediately disbanded. So, rather than wait, they met two hours early to select their slate of delegates before the governor could do anything about it. In our last episode, we saw Governor Dunmore in Virginia attempt to block further conversation by disbanding the legislature. However, yet again, the Burgesses still in town came together and condemned the action while agreeing in principle to a Congress. Even those like Pennsylvania's John Dickinson, a man who has shown himself to be anything but a radical, supported ending the ability of Parliament to legislate or tax the colonists. George Washington, who was never a fan of mob violence and disapproved of the destruction of the tea, likewise agreed that action was needed and supported a boycott. While there were still some conservatives like Galloway who objected to the Congress outright, he was operating in a decided minority. Although the story of the summer of 1774 is the conventions that took place throughout the colonies, that erosion of British authority is something that should not be overlooked. Despite being the lead magistrate in the colonies, the colonial governors found themselves virtually powerless to stop the selection of the delegates. All they could really do is shake their fists and make some vague threats. The British may not have approved of the Congress, but it was clear that they lacked the power to do anything to prevent it from happening. The slate of delegates that would meet in September 1774 was a diverse group politically. For every Samuel Adams, there was a John Dickinson. Radical and moderate elements both were present, with even a small number of conservative actors. At least one delegate, Galloway, would attend the Congress as a delegate despite questioning the legitimacy of that very Congress he was attending. You had 12 colonies meeting in Philadelphia, who had, for more than a century, been acting as competitors. Even in 1774 as they met, they indeed remained competitors. Now, however, in the face of waning British authority over them, the colonies are about to sit down for their most dramatic move yet. Now, before I wrap this thing up for today, I'm going to go ahead and make a book recommendation for those of you who want to go further down this path. Today, I relied heavily on the fantastic book, 1774, by historian Mary Beth Norton. If you are itching to go down that rabbit hole and really understand the political pressures on the individual colonies 
and the ensuing battles that resulted because of them. Norton's book does a fantastic job of laying it all out. I highly recommend it. Next time, we are going to pick up the story in Philadelphia. With the delegates picked, the Congress could begin meeting to decide just how to frame their official action. With that, I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and that you are staying safe. And I will see you all back here next time as we head to the First Continental Congress. Congress.